Hello, and welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderates, centrists, and independents. I'm your host, Hilary Lombard, and today's episode is the first in a three-part series on the For the People Act, aka HR1, aka SB1, aka a legislative attempt to restore democracy. But before we do that, I have one housekeeping note to go over. I'm really excited to announce that we now have listeners in 49 out of 50 states. After the last episode, I had listeners reach out to me from Alabama and Alaska. So now all we need is New Hampshire. Just like Pokemon, I want to catch them all. So if you know anyone in New Hampshire, call them, beep them. If you want to reach them, shout out to Kim Possible and get them to listen to this podcast. Finally, if you guys want to chat, you can always shoot me an email at talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. Find the pod on Twitter at moderatepod. Find me on Twitter at Hillary Lombard. Connect with us on Instagram at moderatepartypod or look us up on Facebook or preferably some combination of all three. All right, with that out of the way, let's get started. The For the People Act is a historic piece of democracy legislation that is currently making its way through the Senate. It's a giant bill and it covers a lot of things, so we're gonna be breaking this down into a mini-series of three episodes. Today's episode is a good one. We're gonna dive headfirst and try to answer some questions that I haven't been able to shake the more that I read about HR1. Who does this country belong to? Who does the government serve? Who gets to decide how much someone's voice matters? And who deserves the right to vote? Speaking of, did you know that the right to vote isn't written in the Constitution? Isn't that crazy? It's not even in the Bill of Rights. You know, the document that outlines the core rights of a citizen in America? Never mentions the right to vote. It goes over freedom of religion, speech, press, assembly, tells us that slaves only count as three-fifths of a real person, that no one can take our guns, and that the army can't stay in your house without your consent, but it never really gets around to voting. Worse than that, after the Constitution is ratified, no one takes is issue with the omission for a hundred years. Eventually, in 1869, the right to vote is enacted through the 15th Amendment, which is great. Definitely one of the best amendments. Love you, 15. Obviously don't love you as much as the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. But you know, I mean, it's a good one. But this bothered me. When you're writing a rule book for a nation, how do you leave off the right to vote? Was it an oversight? Did they do it deliberately? Did they think it wasn't important? I mean, Americans love our right to vote. We take pride in it. How the hell is it not included in the Constitution? So I started digging, and turns out the answer is actually pretty simple. The framers of the Constitution left out the right to vote because they didn't want most people to vote. Think of the US population, like visualize all of us. Now go ahead and remove women. Okay, so that's 50% out. So we have a smaller pot now. So of the men that are left over, let's take out people of color. Okay, even smaller pot. Cool, cool, cool. We're down to about 31% of the population. Awesome. Now let's take out everyone that doesn't own a home. Okay, it's a smaller group. So now from that group of white male homeowners, take out everyone that hasn't paid their house off yet in full. That tiny remaining group, most likely very old, white, and rich, that's who gets to vote, according to the framers. See, the Founding Fathers didn't trust poor people, mostly because they were poor. Take James Madison, for example. 
He thought that poor people, by nature of being poor, could easily be taken advantage of by the rich. So basically, we can only trust rich people because they already have money, so they can't be taken advantage of by other rich people. <laughs> he says, quote, In future times, a great majority of the people will not only be without land, but any other sort of property. These will either combine under the influence of their common situation, in which case the right of property and public liberty will not secure or not be secure in their hands, or, which is more probable, they will become the tools of opulence and ambition, in which case there will be equal danger on another side. Basically saying the poor people are either going to band together and throw liberty out the window, or those sneaky rich people are going to trick them out of their vote. Awesome. It's not just Madison either. Look at Broadway darling Alexander Hamilton. He's the one that said, quote, If it were probable that every man would give his vote freely and without influence of any kind, then every member of the community, however poor, should have a vote. End quote. Which sounds great. But then he says, quote, But since that can be hardly expected in person of indignant fortunes, whereby some who are suspected to have no will of their own are excluded from voting. Basically, poor people are always going to vote to give themselves more money, which makes them poor stewards of liberty. So again, instead, we should trust the people that already have money. Now, before I give you another boring quote from a founding father, I want to give you a little background on this particular founder, because I think that he is by far the most interesting. His name is Governor Morris. He was from New York. He, uh, he wrote the most famous words in the Constitution, we the people, which makes him kind of the namesake of this episode. He designed New York's street grid. He was one of the few founders that stood up and opposed slavery. All great stuff, right? Now, here are the, uh, the more interesting facts about him. He had a peg leg, so there's that. But he actually got that peg leg in a, or after he lost his leg in a carriage accident while fleeing from the husband of a married woman he was having sex with. Another interesting fact, he had sex in the Louvre, and he was pretty proud of it. He thought it was sexy and salacious. The most bizarre fact about Morris is that he died after stabbing himself in the penis with a whalebone. Wild, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. So unfortunately, his wild lifestyle did not make him any more progressive when it came to voting. He said, give the, give the vote to people who have no property and they will sell them to the rich who will be able to buy them. Here's the worst one. The time is not distant when this country will be abound with mechanics and manufacturers who will receive their bread from their employer. Will such men be the secure and faithful guardians of liberty? Children do not vote. Why? Because they want prudence, because they have no will of their own. The ignorant and the dependent can be as little trusted with the public interest. So in this context, these guys sound like assholes. But it's important to note that not every founder felt that way. And because of that, ultimately, they couldn't come up with a consensus on what to do about voting. So they left it up to the states. And this is where things really start to go to shit. 
So the Constitution is by no means a perfect document. But failing to include a fundamental federal right to vote is one of the biggest mistakes the founders made. When they decided to leave it up to the states, the right to vote became a conversation centered around one question. Who do you distrust more? Women, the poor, or people of color? Some states, like Pennsylvania, really couldn't decide. Prior to 1800, they let rich black people vote, but after that, they took the right to vote away from rich black people and gave it to poor white people. Conversely, in 1776, New Jersey became the first and only colony to extend the right to vote to citizens regardless of race or gender. So long as you were rich. But by the early 1800s, they decided to ignore that and restricted the right to vote to white men that pay taxes. A quick shout out here to unexpected feminist ally, Wyoming. Uh, they gave women the right to vote in the 1860s before they were even a state. And in 1889, when Wyoming was trying to become a state, it refused to join the union if the laws giving equality to women were not upheld. Congress told them that if they wanted to become a state, they needed to revoke women's suffrage. And they told Congress via telegram, we will remain out of the union for a hundred years rather than come in without the women. I personally believe that there has never been a more badass telegram in the history of the United States. But I, you know, I'm open. Listeners, if you can top that, send it to my inbox. Until then, Wyoming, you are glorious. All right, let's get back to it. So the founding fathers placed power in the hands of the states, and the right to vote has been expanding and contracting ever since. After the Civil War, black people voted in large numbers. In 1868, the first year black people could vote, turnout was spectacular. South Carolina, a former Confederate state, ended up with a majority black state legislature. Can you imagine that? Obviously, it made former slave owners and general racists very nervous. So they started trying to figure out how to take back their power, or in other words, redeem white supremacy. But they weren't quite sure how to do it. Dr. Seuss can tell you what happened next. Then he got an idea, an awful idea. The Grinch got a wonderful, awful idea. Voter suppression, that's the idea. They needed to disenfranchise black Americans and restrict their right to vote. So they came up with a bunch of racist laws and sneaky tactics to do it. Southern states kept the property requirements that we talked about earlier. They also established literacy tests. Basically, if you can't read, you can't vote. But they make exceptions if the person can understand what is being read to them. Okay, sure, makes sense. But the thing is, those exceptions were only given to white people. Boo! They made election days on the most inconvenient days possible. For example, planting season knowing most black people at the time worked in agriculture. They cut down on the number of places black people could cast their ballots or put them in deeply racist and thus dangerous areas of town. They made black people pass comprehensive tests or, quote, good character tests, which were conducted by white people, and whether or not they passed or failed was up to the complete discretion of those same white people. They purged the voter rolls. This isn't super abnormal, that's how we remove dead people, people that move, etc. Except they removed way more black people than white people. 
So if you were black and you somehow did get registered to vote, you could be arbitrarily removed from the voter roll, show up to vote, and find out that you're no longer registered. And then you had to begin the entire process again, which was pretty daunting in the post-Civil War South. Beyond that, they said that former prisoners couldn't vote, which you may support, which you may support in the present day, but in this historical context, you should also consider that at the time, they had also passed the Black Codes. The Black Codes were a series of rules that basically dictated what Black people could do, and conversely, what they could be arrested for. These laws varied state to state, but here are a few examples of things that Black people could be arrested for. Not having a job. Quitting your job, if you lived in Mississippi. Holding an occupation other than farmer or servant without paying the annual tax of 10 to $100. If you're saying that Black people aren't allowed to ever stop working, and they can't have an occupation besides farmer or servant without paying a tax that they cannot afford, did we really end slavery at that time? Because I'm not so sure. Adding insult to injury, it is also worth noting that a large percentage of judges and police officers in the South at this time were former Confederate soldiers. So it's pretty safe to assume that they were not progressive on the issue of racial justice and civil rights. So a bunch of people end up in prison for petty crimes. And then businesses can lease them for unpaid labor, effectively re-enslaving them. I'm not going to get into that too much because it's, it isn't the theme of this episode, but you guys should check out The 13th. It's a documentary on Netflix that covers this, and trust me, it will f blow your mind. One of the sneakiest ways that they restricted the vote was something called the Grandfather Clause, which basically stated that people who could not read and owned no property were allowed to vote if their fathers or their grandfathers had voted before 1867. Now... Practically no black people could vote before 1867, so the grandfather clause only worked for, you guessed it, white people. There were also less sneaky ways of suppressing the vote, like violence and intimidation, or the poll tax. Basically, if you can't pay the poll tax, you can't vote. And that harmed white people too. Basically, southern states took every opportunity to make voting as inconvenient, expensive, restrictive, and dangerous as possible. And a lot of these things honestly still have not ended. In the civil rights era, people like MLK were still fighting against these same tactics for voter suppression. Putting racism aside for a second, voting isn't something that we are terribly good at. Thinking back to the 2016 election, Trump versus Hillary, if you're like me, it was inescapable and all-consuming. It, honestly, it was like a breakup that just would not end. Everybody had an opinion, except they didn't. In fact, only 56% of voting age people voted. Want to know something even more pathetic? That was actually down from when Barack Obama drove record high turnout. That year, we made it 2% higher to 58%. Can you believe that? 58%? The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development studied voting patterns in 35 developed countries, and the U.S. ranked 30th when it came to voter turnout. 
The Electoral Integrity Project, an independent project based out of Harvard, found that U.S. elections from 2012 to 2018 rated lower than any other long-established democracy or affluent society. Each country was given a score out of 100, and the U.S.'s score was 61. A D-. minus. That's the same score as Mexico or Panama. Ain't that a kick in the teeth for a country that allegedly treasures the right to vote? There are a lot of factors that contribute to our low score, but one that I think is interesting is the issue of decentralization, or basically, leaving it up to the states. So when you look at most other liberal democracies, they aren't having 50 different elections on the same day. There are even some cases where counties are running their elections differently within a state. So you can have hundreds of elections going on, each of them with their own set of rules and procedures. That is unique to America. So basically, our elections are only as safe, secure, free, and fair as our most racist and most underfunded state. Here, let me put this another way. Let's say that you're gonna have heart surgery, right? Now, heart surgery is a big deal. It's not like removing your appendix, something that you don't need. Obviously, we can all agree that the heart is critical. So when you have heart surgery, there are normally five people in the operating room. A surgeon, an anesthesiologist, a scrub nurse, a circulating nurse, and a cardiology technologist. That was hard to say. Now, okay, all of those people have to have the appropriate training and experience to do those jobs, right? Like, we don't just let anybody get in there and touch your heart. So let's assume that your surgeon is Harvard-educated and very well-regarded by their peers. Let's say your nurses, they were the top in their class. The technologist has been doing this every day for the last 10 years, and they've never messed up. But your anesthesiologist, the person making sure that you stay asleep and free from pain, that person was a C student and the state they went to school and said you only have to do medical school for one year instead of four. On top of that, rumor has it that they drink on the job. Now, four members of your surgical team are rock stars, but that one guy, that untrained rookie with a drinking problem, he could kill you. So it doesn't exactly inspire confidence in the whole team. In fact, it actually kills it, right? No matter how good the other four are, if you've got one alcoholic rookie, you're not going to let them do surgery on your heart. Election integrity and democracy work the same way. So we're not great at this, guys. But recently, things have gotten a little better. 2020 was a pretty garbage year by just about any metric. But one of the few silver linings in that garbage dumpster fire of a year was unprecedented voter turnout. It was a record-breaking year. Voter turnout increased in every single state. 158 million ballots were cast. That's the most ever. 67% of eligible voters voted. Remember when we were lucky to get 58? Now we're at 67. That's the highest percentage in 120 years. It also set the record for vote by mail. So obviously everybody embraced this huge accomplishment and celebrated it. We were all incredibly proud as a nation, right?
U.S. Senator Ted Cruz is leading the charge in the Senate to oppose the 2020 presidential election results. The Republican from Texas, along with 10 other Republican senators and senators-elect, are opposing the certification of the Electoral College results. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. Everything should be on the table. Let's stand with President Trump. They're just trying to get an outcome. Damn the law. Damn the process. President Trump won this election, so everyone who's listening, do not be quiet. Do not be, do not be silent about this. We were winning in all the key locations by a lot, actually. And then our numbers started miraculously getting whittled away. These fake ballots that are coming in late. What? And back Pam? to the observation, they're not letting us watch the process. Pam, did you just say fake ballots? She sure did. As of February 19, 2021, state lawmakers have carried out, pre-filed, or introduced 253 bills with provisions that restrict voting access. These bills are in 43 states, one of the most notable, at least recently, was passed in Georgia, or as Mitch McConnell calls it, the one that got away. Georgia was the plot twist of the 2020 election. Unprecedented voter turnout turned Georgia blue and gave Democrats control of the state by a very slim margin. Almost immediately after, state officials got to work making sure something like that never happened again. But this isn't necessarily new for Georgia. Georgia has a long history of voter suppression dating back to the post-Civil War period that we talked about earlier. But their recent history isn't great either. Here's a clip of Stacey Abrams, former candidate for governor in the state of Georgia, talking about voting failures in the 2018 Georgia gubernatorial election. More than 200 years into Georgia's democratic experiment, the state failed its voters. You see, despite a record high population in Georgia, more than a million citizens found their names stripped from the rolls by the Secretary of State, including a 92-year-old civil rights activist who had cast her ballot in the same neighborhood since 1968. Tens of thousands hung in limbo, rejected due to human error and a system of suppression that had already proven its bias. The remedy, they were told, was simply to show up. Only they, like thousands of others, found polling places shut down, understaffed, ill-equipped, or simply unable to serve its basic function for lack of a power cord. Students drove hours to hometowns to cast votes because mismanagement prevented absentee ballots from arriving on time. Parents stood in the fitful rain in four-hour lines, watching as less fortunate voters had to abandon democracy in favor of keeping their jobs and collecting a paycheck. Eligible voters were refused ballots because poll workers didn't think they had enough paper to go around. Ballots were rejected by the handwriting police. Citizens tried to exercise their constitutional rights and were still denied the ability to elect their leaders. That wasn't 1812, that was 2018. This stuff is still happening and it's happening right now. Last week, the state legislature in Georgia passed a far-reaching overhaul of the state's election laws. Voting rights groups say that this law is going to target black residents who make up roughly a third of the state's population and an even larger percentage of the Democratic voting bloc. 
Exit polls show that 88% of the black electorate supported Joe Biden last November. And in January, Democratic Senators John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock saw even bigger support, capturing 92% and 93% of the black vote in their runoff election, respectively. So this new law seems like a direct response to that blue wave. So let's talk about what it does specifically. It creates stricter voter identification requirements for absentee balloting. It limits drop boxes for ballots, imposes shorter early voting hours, and makes it a crime to offer food or water to voters waiting in line at the polls. It also eliminates mobile voting centers and cracks down on souls to the polls, which is an initiative led by black churches to encourage voter turnout and early voting. I'm not going to tell you what group of people suffers disproportionately from this law because you already know. It's black people. But wait, there's more. Do you remember Brad Raffensperger? Proud Republican, citizen of Georgia, democratically elected secretary of state in the state of Georgia? You may remember him from the infamous phone call in which a sitting president pressured, threatened, and begged an election official to, quote, find the votes required to make him win the state. We have won this election in Georgia based on all of this. And there's, there's nothing wrong with, with saying that, Brad. You know, you should want to have an accurate election. And you're a Republican. We believe that we do have an accurate election. No, I no, you don't. No, no, you don't. You don't have. You don't have. Not even close. You got. You're off by hundreds of thousands of votes. You know what they did, and you're not reporting it. That's a. You know, that's a criminal. That's a criminal offense. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes which is one more than we have, because we won the state. So so tell me, Brad, what are we going to do? We won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. And it's going to be very costly in many ways. And I think you have to say that you're going to reexamine it, and you can reexamine it, but, but reexamine it with people that want to find answers, not people that don't want to find answers. The guy that Trump is yelling at? That's Brad Raffensperger. But see, good old Brad did the right thing. He audited the vote three separate times. None of those audits produced enough votes to change the result in Georgia. So, Rad Brad did what he was elected to do, and he certified the results of the election, thus certifying Biden's hold on Georgia, and dooming Trump's chances of re-election. If Trump was your guy, that was a devastating blow, and I get that. But the people of Georgia spoke. Rad Brad is a Republican. He moved for democracy and not for party pressure. We should view Brad as an example of political courage. He stood up to the sitting president of the United States, arguably the most powerful man in the world, and he did it in the name of our democratic process. In my opinion, we should take down one of the Confederate monuments bouncing around Georgia and replace it with a glorious bronze statue of my man, Rad Brad Raffensperger. That's how I feel about it. The Republican state legislature did not feel the same way because one of the most damning aspects of their new bill, in my mind, is that it strips the Georgia Secretary of State of their rightful position as the state's chief election officer. This is a punitive action. 
taken, in my opinion, to punish Rad Brad and to make sure that no one has the opportunity to show that type of political courage again. Instead, this law gives the state election board new powers to intervene in county elections and to replace local election officials, which means the Republican-controlled state board could exert more influence over the administration of elections, including the certification of county results. So you can easily imagine a world where if one party wins in Georgia and the loser starts spreading lies about voter fraud, the state legislature can step in and side with the loser so long as the loser belongs to their party. If they do that, they can successfully overturn election results. This isn't necessarily a problem that I'm picking with Republicans in general. I don't think that either political party should have this much direct influence in an election. I think that having a publicly elected secretary of state at least tries to keep things on the up and up. No political party should have this much control over a state. All right, so I want to keep this moving, so let's get back to the issue at hand. Voting rights, ballot access, all that good stuff. I think that in order to understand this issue, you kind of need to understand why is it hard to vote? And who would want to make it harder? So I live in California, and I am so politically motivated that I have a freaking political podcast. So you can imagine that during every election season, I am a monster. But I moved, and I didn't have a chance to update the address on my driver's license yet. And since I was still in the same state, I mean, literally the same city, I assumed it would be fine. So I drove up to my polling place, I went in, I checked in, got ready to vote, and it turned out that it was not fine. Because my current address did not match the one on my license, I had to fill out a provisional ballot. I had never filled one out before, I honestly didn't know what it was, it, did, it didn't inspire confidence in the process. Now, I'm a pretty dedicated voter, so nothing was going to get in between me and casting my vote, but a lot of other people, they can't take off the time, or they're not likewise motivated. So for me, like I, I took the time to fill out a provisional ballot, which for people that don't know is a ballot that you fill out when there is some question about your eligibility to vote. And it basically, it goes back to your election officials and they verify after the fact, but at least that way you were able to get, to get your vote on record so that it could be counted once your eligibility is verified. So thank God that I was able to do that. But I wanted to tell you that because I'm a nerd, right? I, I feel I've established that in this podcast. I am excited to receive my election materials. I make a little draft board to track issues that I care about. I run this podcast. And this whole process confused me. Somebody that was looking forward to it. So imagine if you only care about politics a little bit. Imagine how confusing it could be then. Imagine if this isn't an interest of yours, it's just something you do one day a year. And then you show up to do it and you find out that you can't or that you have to do a provisional ballot. You don't know what that is, so you stop. Why is it so complicated? Why is it so hard to vote in this country? And why would you actually want to make it harder? The most popular argument that you'll hear for restricting the right to vote is that you're doing so in the interest of securing our elections and preventing voter fraud. Some will even go so far as to say that voting is not a right, it is a privilege that it doesn't have to be easy because if you wanted to do it bad enough, you would figure it out. I think personally, if you feel that way, you have never had something critical to you on the ballot. You've never 
I don't, you've never really had skin in the game. Because if you have, you understand that the right to vote is essential. If an issue near and dear to your heart was on the ballot, say an issue that could give you health care that you desperately need, or protect a mother's right to have an abortion, or conversely, protect a child's right not to be aborted, or maybe the validity of your marriage, the right for somebody that you love to remain in this country, your right to own a gun. Imagine issues like that that you care about are on the ballot and you know that it's going to be decided on this day in November. And if you are not there, then you're not doing your part to ensure that the result is the one that you want or more accurately, the one that you need. If you couldn't vote through no fault of your own, wouldn't you be pissed off? Now, that being said, I do think that some of this stuff gets blown out of proportion or overhyped, rather. I think that Republicans and Democrats weaponize voting issues to turn out their base. Republicans tell their base that Democrats are going to steal the election, so we need to turn out every vote to keep them from doing it. And Democrats tell their base that Republicans are trying to steal their right to vote and that they need to turn out to really stick it to them. This breeds an all-or-nothing media narrative that drives me crazy. Take the 2020 election as an example. Republicans are telling their voters that the election was stolen. It's all fraud in the swing states. They're just liars and crooks. And Democrats are telling their voters that those people are morons. How dare you think something as stupid as voter fraud? Pfft, get out. But, I mean, if you were to question them, it's like, well, I heard it from the President of the United States, who, up until this point, was deemed pretty credible. Neither of those narratives are helpful. Both narratives suppress opposing views, and neither position accurately answers the questions that people are asking. Meaning, you're not convincing anyone that doesn't already agree with you, because you're not trying to, you're just barking at them. A morning consult poll concluded that 70% of Republicans don't think that the election was free and fair. Barking at them to shut up isn't going to reassure them. And if you really believe that there was fraud, barking at people that think that there wasn't isn't going to convince them to come over to your side. Now, I'm not going to try and relitigate the 2020 election today, but I do want to talk about voter fraud and election security because I want to give credence to those questions, at least the ones asked in good faith. I don't think it's a crazy thing to wonder, especially when, as I said, the president and U.S. senators are telling you that it is not a crazy thing to think about. So first, how common is voter fraud actually? Well, voter fraud is incredibly rare in this country. Justin Levitt, a law professor at Loyola Law School, tracked such cases and identified only 31 impersonation cases between 2000 and 2014 across the country, out of more than 1 billion votes cast. Oregon which is a state that has been doing vote-by-mail elections since 2000, has sent out more than 100 million mail ballots and reported only around a dozen cases of proven fraud. And that's in the last 20 years. But one of the problems that we face in this country is the chasm between the reality of voter fraud and the perception of voter fraud. A lot of people think that voter fraud is happening a lot more than it actually is. So it makes sense that they would want to make the rules stricter to prevent that, right? I mean, that's reasonable. One of the easiest but most controversial ways to do this is by re requiring an ID to cast your vote. Activists say that this is a racist policy and a callback to the Jim Crow era. 
Now, I honestly, I don't agree with that. I do not think that having to show ID before you can vote is an unreasonable requirement. To be honest, voting without an ID sounds like a lot of work for election officials and doesn't really inspire confidence in election integrity. I also don't think that it is a racist expectation. We just want to make sure you are who you say you are before you vote. Perfectly reasonable, right? But this is where my personal belief bumps up against systemic racism. 11% of Americans don't have a government-issued ID. When I first heard that statistic, that felt crazy to me. That 11% of Americans cannot legally buy booze, they don't have a bank account. They're just, they can't drive? They're just out here living with no ID. But when I looked into it a little bit further, I realized that that is millions of Americans. And of that group, the majority is people of color. You want to know a stat that hits even harder? Nationally, up to 25% of African-American citizens of voting age lack a government-issued photo ID, compared to only 8% of white people. I struggled with that, honestly, because I, I mean, I stand by what I said. I don't think it's crazy to need an ID to vote. You need an ID to get a bank account, and arguably one is much more important than the other. But I think that when you look at that data, it is disproportionately impacting people of color, specifically black Americans. So I think, honestly, it doesn't matter what my opinion of the policy is. I think that when a policy, no matter how benign, has a disproportionate and negative impact on a certain racial group, something isn't working and we should fix it. If we can fix it, we should fix it. Which got me thinking, why, what is the, what is the root cause that's keeping people from getting an ID? And while I don't have the stats to back this up, I can speak anecdotally about my experience trying to get a damn real ID in the state of California, which by the way, guys, it's ongoing. Why? Because the first time I tried to do it, it was too much in one day. So I was just like, uh, I guess I'll just renew my driver's license and do this later. Literally, I gave up and I'm sure that a lot of people do too. So let me just tell you, to get a real ID in California, I had to take time off work to go to the county office, which is only open eight to five, Monday through Friday. And I had to pay them $30 for a piece of paper. That piece of paper was a copy of my birth certificate. I don't love having to pay for documentation of my own birth, but whatever, I did it. Okay, cool. So then I had to bring in two additional documents to prove residency. I chose a bank statement and a utility bill, but you can't have a bank account without an ID. And many people don't have their name on a utility bill because who would rent to somebody without an ID? So those two are out. How do you prove that you are who you say you are enough to get an ID without an ID? I don't know. So anyway, I gathered up all of these documents and then I realized that I cannot process them online. I actually have to make an appointment and go to the DMV, take more time off work, pay another $40 and then wait for my ID to show up in the mail. Now, some low income people don't have 70 bucks to spare and can't take that much time off of work. Or maybe they don't have a car to get to the DMV. There are a lot of barriers. Ultimately, I'm gonna have to suck it up, give them my money and give them my time because I need an ID. I want one. And the obstacles to getting one for me are not insurmountable, but clearly they are for some people. And I wasn't really sure what to make of that. 
And then I talked to Erica from Rank the Vote Nebraska, front of the pod, no big deal, and she proposed a very simple and straightforward solution. And I was honestly, I was surprised that I had not heard it before. So what she said is issue anyone that wants to vote a voter ID card. Simple, right? I mean, then we're getting voter ID, but making it accessible to everybody. So I actually want to take her idea a step further and say, make those cards free, set up an office for processing those cards in every post office in America. If the post office can take your passport picture, they can take an ID picture. Maybe train the schools to do it. So when kids turn 18 and are automatically registered to vote, knock on wood that that passes, an election official comes in, takes their photo, and helps them fill out the application for their voter ID card. Boom. Now we get to keep voter ID, but also help those people living without an ID get one. Now, election security is a bit more complicated. The 2020 election was the most secure in history. That's not hyperbole. That's the official conclusion of the Trump administration's Department of Homeland Security. Politicians try to frame this as an argument between voting rights and election security, and they're completely wrong to do so. We should expand voting rights and work towards safe and secure elections. And, not or. So what does that look like practically? Well, first and foremost, we need to stop pretending like elections can be funded on Skittles and good intentions. U.S. elections are drastically underfunded and are going to need money and support in order to modernize. Modernizing our election process is something that we should all want because having an election like 2020 in which the results are questioned was stressful for everyone involved, both sides of the aisle. That's a stressful situation that can be completely avoided. So federalists don't at me, but we're going to need a national standard for securing our elections. I'm okay with letting states keep individual laws that apply most to them, but I think that they should be able to clear a minimum threshold. For example, eight states still use paperless voting, meaning it is entirely electronic, thus difficult to audit. And thankfully, none of those states were swing states or we probably still wouldn't have a president. Now, I am a firm believer that the government uses too much paper. We all use too much paper. I want to go paperless from an environmental standpoint, but not when it comes to elections. You know, like stop printing receipts that I don't want and save that paper for the ballots. Because we need paper backups to ensure that our ballots haven't been tampered with and to perform audits later. We also need paper backups uh, of voter registration databases. Now, one day we may live in a world where blockchain technology can do a lot of the heavy lifting in this area, but that is not the world that we live in today. So we're going to need paper backups. Another way to secure the election? Retire old voting machines, upgrade the technology, and standardize the equipment that we use. That way the public can be confident that it works and Fox News can't single out Dominion voting systems. Like, you can't play the latest video game on a PS2. You can't do it. If we want our elections to be safe and secure, we're gonna need updated voting machines. Finally, we should automatically audit election results to ensure their accuracy, not just when the president won't concede. It should just be a regular thing. Now, I know that we've talked about a lot today. We've covered the history of voting rights in America, voter suppression, voter registration, ballot access, how messed up the Georgia state legislature is. We've we've covered a lot. But what I need you to remember is this. This country belongs to its people. It belongs to us. It does not belong to politicians any more than the average citizen. 
And an attack on the right to vote is an attack on this country and it must be defeated. Politicians don't get to decide who can vote. Our constitution is amended to provide us all with that right. Voting is how we impact change. It's how we move things forward when it would be easier to go backward. It is the fundamental civic responsibility that we have. It's the shield that defends democracy and the sword that fights back against injustice. It is, for many people, a power that you're born with and a power that our soldiers will die to defend. And no politician can take that away. I told you that this episode is part one of three surrounding the For the People Act, which is currently in Congress. The For the People Act provides solutions to many of the problems that I've outlined in this episode. Here are just a few examples of what it could accomplish. When it comes to voting or voter registration, the For the People Act will automate voter registration, it will streamline same-day and online registration, and protect against flawed purges of the voter rolls. It'll restore the Voting Rights Act, restore voting rights to people with prior convictions that have already served their time, strengthen vote by mail, institute nationwide early voting so that states like Georgia can't take away churches' right to mobilize voters. It'll prevent unreasonable wait times at the polls, and it will protect against deceptive practices in election administration. Now, I don't agree with everything in there. Moving away from voter ID without having a solution in place, that's a bad call. But more things are good in this bill than are bad. It also squares away concerns about election security by prioritizing replacing paperless voting systems, promoting audits, and election system vendor oversight. On the next episodes in the series, we're going to walk through what the For the People Act can do about dark money and partisan gerrymandering. I know, so many solutions in one bill, it's madness. So, stay tuned. As always, if you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. And if you have any questions or comments on this episode, you can email me at talk at moderatepartypodcast.com or message me on social media. I want to close out this episode with some words from Stacey Abrams about what makes our country great and the ability that we all have to make it a little bit greater. We are a mighty nation because embedded in our national experiment is the chance to fix what is broken, to call out what has faltered, to demand fairness wherever it can be found, which is why on election night, I declare that our fight to count every vote is not about me. It is about us. It is about the democracy that we share and our responsibility to preserve our way of life, our democracy, because voting is not a right for some. It is a right for all, and it is not a privilege. I stand here today as witness to that truth. This election is about all of us, as is the resolution of this moment. I acknowledge that former Secretary of State Brian Kemp will be certified as the victor in the 2018 gubernatorial election. But to watch an elected official who claims to represent the people in this state baldly pin his hopes for election on the suppression of the people's democratic right to vote has been truly appalling. So let's be clear, this is not a speech of concession. Because concession means to acknowledge an action is right, true, or proper. As a woman of conscience and faith, I cannot concede that. But my assessment 
is the law currently allows no further viable remedy. Now, I could certainly bring a new case to keep this one contest alive, but I don't want to hold public office if I need to scheme my way into the post because the title of governor isn't nearly as important as our shared title, voters. And that is why we fight on and why I want to say thank you. Thank you to those of you who organized your communities and shattered records. More than 1.9 million voters who stood up in this midterm for protecting our public schools, for continuing criminal justice reform, for Medicaid expansion, and for real economic mobility for all of our counties. We won state house races and senate races, a new seat in Congress, and we put America on notice that change is not coming to Georgia, it has arrived, and you made it so. But those who feared change pushed back, and so we waited for the whole truth of this election, good and evil. We waited for it to come forth. So thank you to those of you who shared your stories, for the tens of thousands of calls into our voter protection line, Thank you for volunteering your hours after the polls closed and for the last 10 days, for driving to all 159 counties and hearing the concerns of Georgia citizens through tears and frustration and disappointment. Because you see, Georgia still has a decision to make about who we will be in the next election and the one after that and the one after that. So we have used this election and its aftermath to diagnose what has been broken in our process. Make no mistake, the former Secretary of State was deliberate and intentional in his actions. I know that eight years of systemic disenfranchisement, disinvestment, and incompetence had its desired effect on the electoral process in Georgia. I also know that we live in a nation where four federal judges were necessary to force the counting of the ballots cast in the face of Brian Kemp's opposition to and disregard for their lawful consideration. I know that millions of Georgians, of Americans, of goodwill, and various partisan beliefs, they are enraged by these truths. Now, in response, you may seek to vent your anger, or worse, to turn away from politics, because it can be as rotten and rigged as you've always believed. But I implore each of you not to give in to that anger or apathy, but instead turn to action because the antidote to injustice is progress. The cure to this malpractice is a fight for fairness in every election held, in every law passed, in every decision made. Pundits and hyperpartisans will hear my words as a rejection of the normal order. You see, I'm supposed to say nice things and accept my fate. They will complain that I should not use this moment to recap what was done wrong or to demand a remedy. You see, as a leader, I should be stoic in my outrage and silent in my rebuke. But stoicism is a luxury, and silence is a weapon for those who would quiet the voices of the people. And I will not concede because the erosion of our democracy is not right. Regardless of party, we want what is best for our children, for our families, for our neighborhoods. We may not share the same faith, but we are knitted together by our belief and our potential for more. I will work in these coming weeks to elect John Barrow as our next Secretary of State because he is a man of principle and goodwill who will administer his responsibilities for the people and not his party. I will work to elect Lindy Miller as our next Public Service Commissioner where she will speak for those who have been ignored for too long. And I will pray 
for the success of Brian Kemp, that he will indeed be a leader for all Georgians, that he will pledge to fight for the rights of those who disagree with him, and that he will keep his promises, that he will refuse the call of those who see how close this election really was, because we know that some are going to propose to make voting even harder. They see voter engagement in communities of color and they cry fraud. Or they lie about the cost of democracy to justify closing more polling places. I pray he will reject this vicious and tired response in favor of preserving what has left and what is left of our state's reputation for equality and civil rights. But I will not leave it to prayers alone. As I have for more than 25 years, I will stand with my fellow Georgians in pursuit of fairness. You see, I did so as a college student, speaking in the shadow of Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. at the 30th anniversary of the March on Washington. I did so as Democratic leader of the House of Representatives and as the Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia. And now I will do so as a private citizen, ready to continue to defend those whose choices were denied full expression. Today, I announce the launch of Fair Fight Georgia, an operation that will pursue accountability in Georgia's elections and integrity in the process of maintaining our voting rolls. In the coming days, we will be filing a major federal lawsuit against the state of Georgia for the gross mismanagement of this election and to protect future elections from unconstitutional actions. We will channel the work of the past several weeks into a strong legal demand for reform of our election systems in Georgia. And I will not waver in my commitment, a lived commitment, to work across party lines and across divisions to find a common purpose in protecting our democracy. Because we deserve a state that elects Democrats and Republicans and independents. We deserve a state that elects leaders who will not tolerate the erosion of our values. Fair fight Georgia, because these votes are our voices. And we are entitled to our choices, each of us. And we have always been, Georgia, at the forefront of speaking truth to whatever power may lay claim to leadership, if only for a moment. And we will win because we are Georgia. And I promise you, we will get it done. Thank you.